This afternoon, I thought I would follow up on some thoughts, reflections about the, the consciousness aggregate. In my uh, way of thinking, this feels like just a bunch of reflections rather than a coherent talk. Um, these are aspects of the teachings on consciousness that I have found useful, interesting in my own practice. And so it's an offering. We'll start there. And then there's a couple of questions that are related to consciousness that I thought I'd address. and. Uh, if there's time, opening it to questions. So just as a reminder of what I m mentioned this morning, the, the aggregate of consciousness is usually defined in the suttas as being this really bare, simple knowing. It's defined in terms of consciousness with respect to each of the six sun spaces. Eye consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, mind consciousness, ear consciousness. The suttas seem to define it as a really simple, basic, cognizing function. The commentaries decided it's got more going for it. Uh, there's one, uh, one Bhikkhu Bodhi in one note about it says that the commentaries offer that perception, feeling, and consciousness are cognitive functions of increasing depth, discrimination, and comprehension. So with consciousness being the most intelligent of the uh, uh, cognizing functions. Bhikkhu Bodhi's comment about this, and I find it interesting, he says... It's difficult to re reconcile, this perspective is difficult to reconcile with the account of these factors in the suttas. So I'm going to approach it from the perspective that they're, it's pretty simple, pretty simple functioning. Sayadaw, I think I said this this morning, Sayadaw Utejaniya says, consciousness is a little bit stupid. It kind of just seeing, <laughs> hearing, <laughs> it's about what it does. <laughs> it's a kind of a perplexing uh, function in some ways, and in fact, even the very way it's defined in the suttas. In one place, um, well, in many places it's defined as these various kinds of consciousness, but that begs the question, well, what do you mean by consciousness? It's like, okay, so the consciousness aggregate is eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness. But then it's like, well, what 
the heck is consciousness? So other places in the suttas, consciousness is defined as a process by what it does. In one place, it says, consciousness cognizes, quote, this is pleasant. This is unpleasant. Uh, the distinction in how this is phrased with respect to feeling is when it describes feeling, it says, feeling feels pleasant, feels unpleasant. So a subtle distinction there, one being kind of the, uh, a little bit of the, um, just kind of a knowing of pleasant or unpleasant. And then in another place, consciousness is described as, for example, it knows sweet, salty, bitter, sour, pungent, which is pretty much identical to how perception is described. And so this is kind of a conundrum. How is consciousness different from feeling, from perception? How can we tell consciousness from feeling and perception? And so if you find consciousness to be a confusing or challenging or subtle or obscure experience to recognize, this has been a conundrum going on for 2,600 years. So you're not alone. <laughs> In one um, recent text, not text, but scholarly work, Sue Hamilton, in a book called Identity and Experience, offers the suggestion that um, while in certain places in the suttas, consciousness is defined in a way that seems to encroach on perception, what perception does. She said, we should understand that perception does the actual discrimination. So the, the actual recognition of what it is, doing that kind of check in the filing cabinet business. While consciousness is and this is her, her words, the awareness by which we experience every stage of the cognitive process, including the process of discriminating. And so, vijnana being simpler and broader, just knowing. She uses the word awareness here, just knowing. We can know the process of feeling, we can know the process of perception. But this definition of consciousness that's related to perception and feeling creates a little bit of uh, perplexity in the mind, at least in my mind. And then there's one place in the suttas where 
Shariputra is having a conversation with somebody who's asking him about, like, okay, so tell me about knowing, feeling, and perception. You know, I'm confused, basically. And, uh, you know, how do we tell them apart? Can we tell them apart? Can we, can we tell one from another? Like, can we uh, know consciousness just by itself, basically? And Shariputra responds, These states... Consciousness, feeling, and perception are conjoined. It is impossible to separate each of these states from the others in order to describe the difference between them. For what one, for p- what one feels, that one perceives. What one perceives, that one cognizes. So there's the understanding that these three functions of mind arise together and they function together they support each other they're 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 um different functions in the mind but they intimately rely on each other i i understand that well there's two pieces to this one is that um what i hear this to mean is that in order to recognize or observe or or be familiar with what knowing is, what consciousness is, it requires feeling and perception. So in order to be aware of consciousness, feeling and perception have to be functioning. In order to be aware of feeling, we have to have knowing and a perception functioning. You know, when we talk about, you know, feeling, I feel pleasant. It's like along with that comes the perception, this is pleasant. And the knowing of which sense base and just the knowing of the experience. So there are different facets of experience that rely on each other, are intertwined with each other. And yet we can recognize or kind of be interested in or the uh, the awareness, the mindfulness can begin to recognize, oh, this part of this complicated functioning, this part is the feeling part and this part is the perceiving part and this part is the knowing part. Kind of like this bell, you know, the bell. We, we look at it and it's round and it's brown. We can look at the brown part and recognize that it's brown and we can look at the round part and know that it's round and we know they're different things but they're intimately tied up in this one, ex- one object. It's kind of like that in my understanding. Partly I find this teaching interesting or useful because uh, it helps me to just relax. You know, okay, I'm not going to be able to even necessarily really be able to, to tease them apart, but can, can there just be some curiosity around each of these aspects of mind? And that's how I explore this. It's just, you know, 
I spent one retreat at Shuiyumin with the kind of the question of what is perception? You know, not looking, you know, not trying to do it or find it, but just holding that question. What is perception? How does perception function? And during that uh, five-week period, there was a tremendous amount of learning around the functioning of perception. And so, you know, just curiosity around, around them. Another teaching around um, consciousness is that experience is made up, we talked about these mind moments, 17 trillion mind moments. Each one of those mind moments is understood to be the arising of consciousness with a bunch of mental factors joined to it. This is uh, the, the, the poly term for this moment of consciousness with all of these functions joined to it. And you know some of the functions, so there's consciousness and its concomitants, as it's sometimes said. This is the Abhidhamma language, the Buddhist psychology language. So consciousness arises with various factors associated with it. It arises with every moment. It arises with perception and feeling, as we've just been saying. So consciousness, perception, and feeling are kind of the given of our experience. Every moment, consciousness, perception, and feeling. Also, each moment includes attention, contact, intention, concentration, which is interesting. It's not the kind of concentration that we think of. but just a moment of kind of landing with experience. I think that's what it means there. So there's a tension which directs to experience and uh, the, the concentration is basically hitting it, meeting it. That's my understanding of it. And then another one called psychic life, which I don't quite really understand except just a sense of being alive. So in any case, there's consciousness with these functions that arise, and either there will be basically a moment, um, a moment of consciousness that includes greed, aversion, or delusion, and it will be kind of a, an unwholesome mind moment, a, a, a hindrance. Or a mind moment will include uh, factors of love, of wisdom, of equanimity. And it will be a, a mind moment that's helping us move in the direction of freedom. So the, the Pali word for this is citta, spelled C-I-T-T-A. And this is, this is essentially what we are studying. We are studying citta. The third foundation of mindfulness is the foundation of citta. Studying consciousness arising with its colorings, its flavorings. So with the understanding that there are many, many of these mind moments in the blink of an eye, uh, you know, we might have the idea, and sometimes experience can feel like it's just broken into tiny little bits. 
So every moment of experience, every little moment of experience, every brief, I should say, every brief moment of experience consists of, you know, this knowing and some experience that is known. Attention and contact meet some experience and it's known. So there's the knowing, the consciousness, and what is known. And this is happening over and over again. A sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, something arising in the mind. And with this understanding or this concept that we've been exploring of the brevity and just the sheer number and rapidity of mind moments, we might create the idea, and I certainly did, that these mind moments are kind of really tiny. That maybe our, ex- our experience is just like a bunch of little pixels on a television screen. That is what makes up what feels like a broad experience, these tiny little like dots of experience. And to some extent, I think there's a, that's a kind of an interesting analogy. We can look at it that way that the feeling of these rapidly changing mind moments, it's like it's, it's moving so quickly that it creates this sense of, of something more stable. But I think also, and I just actually recognized this this morning in my own sitting, and so that's why I'm speaking to it now, that we might have the idea that because those moments are so brief, it means the objects are really tiny like it's a tiny little bit of sight or a tiny little bit of sound or or a tiny little bit of love and and what might the experience of sight be is a whole bunch of those moments put together or what might the experience of love be is a is a whole bunch of those love moments put together and then it's just this tiny little thing this tiny experience And as I was sitting this morning, I had the understanding, more of an intellectual understanding, but um, it impacted my experience in a way to recognize that the, the suttas talk about vast objects. It talks about boundless love. It talks about infinite space that the mind can no infinite space and infinite consciousness. And the description of those boundless love, infinite space, infinite consciousness, those don't sound tiny. So my understanding is that a moment of consciousness can meet boundless love. So the the size or the what can be known in a moment of consciousness may be vast. For me, as I opened to that reflection, it it kind of arose, the reflection arose in my sitting this morning. There was an opening, kind of a, a, a more of a sense of vastness and sense of, I don't know, you know, I don't know sense of the opening to possibility that I can't know. In a moment, 
a mind moment ceasing is understood to penetrate the full full understanding of awakening it's like that full understanding is not small but happening in a moment just a sp- and so for me that reflection just helps to shake up any ideas that I think I have about what experience is or how it might be able to be known. I'm going to switch the order of some things here, go to some questions. One is um, asking how we might observe the conditioned nature of consciousness, in particular, ear, nose, tongue, consciousness. The Buddha did speak very directly and specifically about consciousness being conditioned, that it too is an arising and passing phenomenon. It is not a... uh, a stable experience. Sometimes it can feel that way. Sometimes it feels like we open into a space where knowing feels very stable and things are coming and going in that space of knowing. The teachings of the Buddha ask us to keep looking, keep exploring. That consciousness arises and ceases moment by moment. That there is no stable in background consciousness. And so encourage us to explore the conditioned nature of consciousness. And in the, um, the text it points to recognizing eye consciousness arises independence on the eye and forms. So that's the conditioning nature. If we lost our eyes we would no longer experience eye consciousness. Likewise, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness. The best that I've heard anybody describe a practice around this is is as a reflection, just to reflect that what is the condition for seeing to happen? Seeing arises because the eyes are open, there's light, there's forms, there have been a couple of times in my life where I've been somewhere where it was possible to be in complete darkness, no light whatsoever. Eye consciousness ceases. There's nothing, nothing at the eye door. It's very disorienting <laughs> in a way. Got your eyes open, you know your eyes are open. And, and there's no amount of time in that space 
that the eyes will adjust because there is no light. So part of my understanding about forms includes light, light, light impinging on the eye. So if there is no light, seeing will not happen. And so we can reflect about this. <coughs> I think it's pretty, pretty hard to see directly the moment of, you know, I and forms and consciousness arising independence on I and forms. That, that happens so, so quickly. There are descriptions of people who experience that. I, I don't uh, expect ever to be able to see that. That may get in my way, I suppose. (laughs) 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 But at the same time, you know, the the Buddha did point to there's so many different places and explorations we can make that freedom can come from. So I think, well, let's just look at what's obvious and work from that. Let me not try to find something that I'm not able to see right now and try to study that. Let's work with what's here already. And that often includes feeling, craving, perception, recognizing awareness, recognizing uh, aversion or greed. You know, just what's obvious and, and watching what happens as mindfulness meets it. We see something fall apart, the falling apart of Craving, that, that very experience of the falling apart of craving, a release that happens there. And that can be experienced directly, very profound impact on our being to see that. And so let's work with what is obvious. Because what's obvious, willingness to meet what's obvious, is where freedom can be found. And then another question. Basically comes down to, I'll, I'll, read, I'll read it. If we are not our minds, but receive what's arising and engage with the defilements to fully be aware of them, for example, anger is like this, then who is doing the knowing? This kind of question has been asked since the time of the Buddha also. A version of this question was asked by by someone to the Buddha, basically around feeling, you know, who feels? And the Buddha responded, it's not a valid question. Basically, the entirety of the question is framed on a misunderstanding. He says, it's not a valid question. I don't say who feels. I don't I don't say one feels. I'm sorry, he says, I don't say one feels. The valid question is, from what as a requisite condition comes feeling? And the valid answer is, 
from contact as a requisite condition comes feeling. From feeling as a requisite condition comes craving. And this person didn't quite get it because his next question was, well then who craves? (laughs) And the Buddha said, not a valid question. The question should be, with what, as a requisite condition, does craving come to be? So the Buddha points us, rather than looking at experience from perspective of who's doing that, so what are the conditions for that to arise? What are the conditions for the arising of consciousness? And he points to the I in forms. Based on the I in forms, I consciousness arises. Based on the ear and sounds, ear consciousness arises. It's very difficult for our perspective of feeling like being one who knows or one who uh, thinks or feels. Very difficult from that perspective to conceive from any other perspective. And so all of our Questions and orientations often come back to that. The Buddha kept pointing us back to notice the conditioned nature of experience. Keep noticing the conditioned nature of experience. So then I'd like to explore a little bit about the aggregates and selfing, you know, partly because it comes up here around, well, who knows, who feels? The teaching on the aggregates is really uh, one of the key ways the Buddha has into describing the misunderstood notion of the sense of self identity view and the conceit I am. He actually described 20 different ways the sense of identity comes to be. And I'm not going to go through those right now. I will say they are four processes on the five aggregates four processes at work with each of the five aggregates. So four times five is 20. I'll explore this notion of selfing around the aggregates in a simpler way this afternoon. One comes from um, another scholar, Bhikkhu Analio, A-N-A, L-A-Y-O. And he, he says that the relation to the, our sense of self with respect to the five aggregates goes something like this. The body is where I am. And we locate ourselves in the body. Feelings are how I am. Perception 
is what I am recognizing. Mental formations are why I am acting. And consciousness is whereby I am experiencing. Consciousness is the mechanism by which we experience. And so we locate ourselves in space. We identify with our feelings. We identify with what we recognize. We act. I talked about the other day that, you know, action unfolds. We are sitting and feel a sense of gnawing in our stomach, unpleasant. The mind recognizes that, perceives it as hunger. The intention to alleviate that discomfort arises. Many more moments of intention and motivation arise and we find ourselves getting up and leaving the hall and going to get some food. In that process, we attribute, I'm hungry, I need to go get food. There's no need to make that attribution because the process of body and mind would carry on without that attribution. So the, these intentions forming, they form by themselves, or no, they form in conditions, they form on conditions often based on unpleasant and pleasant experience, those intentions form and we find action resulting. It's a process carrying on and our self-conscious mechanism figures, I did that, I made that choice. So each of these aspects, you know, it may be that we, all, we, we have a sense that I'm located in the body and I'm feeling this way. It's not like we get one of these at a time. You know, it's like we have all these different threads coming together. I'm in the body and this hurts. I'm in the body and I want to do this. And so there's different, uh, it's like different components or different parts to our sense of self. And the Buddha's teaching on the five aggregates is to help us recognize, you know, through the observation we witness, you know, in particular around intention and around these areas we tend to strongly identify, you know, I'm the one who chooses, I'm the one who acts and decides. That's a very strong feeling of self. And we witness the process unfolding and it's like, wow, who did that? We see, we see that there isn't, it's not necessary to have this sense of self. It's just this process unfolding and the intention arises and the body moves. It's kind of like, wow, who's, who's like, you know, it's like I'm a puppet. Somebody's pulling the strings, you know, and then the question, who's pulling the strings? Not a valid question. <laughs> Conditions arise. <laughs> 
There's another common phrase in the suttas around selfing, uh, or really around the teaching of anatta, the teaching of not-self. And it is that the Buddha encourages us over and over to recognize this experience, what's happening here in this moment, is not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am. When I first heard this, you know, I just let that phrase kind of go over me and, you know, I would say that to myself, not me, not mine, not who I am, without really thinking about the various pieces of that. And in the last year or so, a couple years maybe, I've, I've been curious about, well, you know, the Buddha didn't usually use words lightly. So is there something distinct about these three things, these three aspects, not me, not mine, not who I am. So what I'm going to describe now is nothing that I've read anywhere. This comes from my own exploration, my own experience, and so I have no idea if this is what the Buddha meant. But this makes sense to me. It makes, there's a kind of a way in which this understanding was helpful as I began to articulate it to myself. So basically, it's three flavors, and I, I put it down to I, me, and mine. The sense of I, in my experience, is I, I'm the actor in the sentence. I'm the agent. I'm the, I'm the subject of the sentence, I do things. And so the sense of I is that identification with the one who does, who acts. And so primarily with the mental formations. So I'm the one who's in control. As I explore the feeling of I, it has that flavor to me, mostly, uh, the sense of of being the one in control, the agent. The sense of mine is more the possessor, the one who owns. This is, this is so many different areas of experience. Sometimes we feel like we own our bodies, like I'm the one who's in, con- you know, owning the body, or the body is mine, or possessions are mine, feelings are mine. So the, f- the sense of mine in experience has at least, you know, to have a sense of ownership. There's, there's, there's something out there that this being, like, wants to take uh, possession of. And so there's that quality or sense of possessiveness in this feeling of mine. The me... I reflected on this in terms of the English position of me in a sentence. The me is the object of the sentence. The me is the hapless one that things happen to. And this is a distinct kind of recognition in our practice. We can have a deep insight into no control that sense of, you know, that insight into not I, 
at one point I was I was watching experience and recognizing, you know, consciousness was arising and objects were being known and I wasn't in charge of any of it. And I could clearly see I wasn't doing the knowing, I wasn't doing the feeling, I wasn't doing the perception. But it sure felt like I was the one experiencing them. And that is the me to me. That is the the sense of being impinged on. So to me that's a, a kind of a subtler sense of self. Maybe maybe the subtlest sense of self, the feeling that things hap I'm the one things happen to. And so that's a good exploration. Okay, what 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 does that mean? What is that experience of I'm the one things happen to? With respect to exploring the sense of self, it's useful to not try to say, oh, well, there is no me, so I should be able to see that. Again, kind of like trying to see something that we don't even know what it is. But instead, investigate what's here. Oh, this is what a feeling of me is like. On that same retreat, there was a, a few moments of the falling away of that sense of me. And there was not even a question. The question of who's feeling this didn't even arise. It's just not relevant. And it's, it's, it's a different perspective. that's what I had in my notes. There's a little bit of time left if there are questions. Yeah. Say yes to me? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I've always, back to the gazillion mind moments, um, I've always thought of them as going, not only being really small, but going really fast. <laughs> and when you were talking about that, coming together with infinite space, I thought, maybe it's more like one of those multi-pin things you can stick your hand in, you know, and then you see your hand. Mm -hmm. It's like all of those don't have to happen sequentially, but then actually it can add up that all those mind moments create yeah, I don't know. I mean, I have no idea. I mean, this notion this notion of mind moments happening sequentially, I think that is an Abhidhamma perspective. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. <laughs> and I've also had a kind of a sense of that, that, you know, even just thinking about the six sense bases, you know, why does it have to be a moment of seeing and then a moment of hearing? Why can't they function together? You know, our, uh, our um, I think our brains do a pretty good job of parallel processing. Yeah. Why not mind moments being in parallel? I don't know. You know, there's, there's nothing in the, in the text about that, but 
it does seem to me at times, and you know, maybe it's just that I'm not seeing the 17 trillion and it is really just rapidly interspersed, but why does it have to be separate? Why does it have to be that, that sight even like, you know, like it, it is like an impression, you know, it's like each of those rods on the back of those rods and cones on the back of the eye, they're functioning in parallel. Each one of them takes in a, a color and form moment. Are they happening one after another? And at or? the same time, yeah. I see you're talking, and I'm hearing that. So this, I think, this points to the experience. You know, let's just go with the experience. Feels like it's happening simultaneously. Let's not try to see it in this time slice thing. What is the experience? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So again, anything that I, th- I think that shakes up the idea that we know or have a view, it's like this, I think it's useful, you know. Uh, just the mind is an amazing thing. Let's see what we can learn <laughs> and, and try not to carry views in because carrying views into our exploration influences what we see. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, I think it's again, it's pointing to seeing that that what we think of as experience is not at all what is carrying on. And, uh, you know, that, that, that description of the 17 trillion mind moments is, a lot of it is meant to describe the conditioned nature of experience the understanding, the insight into the conditioned nature of experience is incredibly freeing. The Buddha did not teach the 17 trillion mind moments. You know, this is a later teaching. Uh, so, you know, I think we can leave it aside if it isn't of interest or uh, feel, if it doesn't feel valuable, you are quite welcome <laughs> to just not go there. Is my understanding, the Buddha didn't, didn't teach that. Yeah, Joey. Um, <coughs> in my own experience, I can see how uh, uh, seeing Vedna and seeing the arisal of intention uh, and the non-self nature of that has been really free. Um, and I can understand, you know, again, the, uh, how perspective can lead to Mm-hmm. And yet I'm going, and yet, perspective, Vedna, consciousness are separate from the mental formations. So many things thrown into the mental formations. And yet, 
these three are separate, so I, I, I again, you know, have to assume it's because they're important. <laughs> or, or, you know, or distinct, you know, like yeah. distinct in yeah. the function. Yeah. So a couple pieces um, you touched on. One um, that I'll speak to also is, you know, calling out or highlighting feeling, perception, and consciousness. Uh, feeling and perception in particular are also understood in certain contexts to be mental formations. And so why are they highlighted in the aggregates as separate? And I think you're, you're right, it's, um, they're important. They tend to be areas that, in particular, clinging lands on, you know. Um, so, but the other, another understanding I have of this from another teacher, uh, Walpola Rahula, who wrote a book called, a famous book called What the Buddha Taught. He pointed out, or his perspective on feeling and perception as being distinct from volitional formations, is that feeling and perception are a result of past conditioning, but are not inherently onward leading to karma, or not onward leading to results. Pleasant feeling can arise, and depending on what mental formations, what volitional formations are in the mind, that feeling will lead to craving, or it will lead to knowing feeling. And so feeling is not inherently onward leading, so it's not volitional in that way. Likewise with perception. And so that's Walpola Rahula's def dis de uh, description or explanation for why those two are pulled out. I think they're pulled out because in the aggregates, the Buddha is pointing to those areas around which we identify in particular. You know, how, how do we congeal <coughs> around experience? We can see, it's, it's easier to see how we congeal around feeling and perception and see the freedom around that. I think that the congealing around, I'm the one things who happen to, is the identification with consciousness. It's like the, one of the subtler forms of identification. And so as we begin to explore that feeling of me, I think we're exploring into that uh, taking birth. I'm the one who knows. I'm the one who receives the knowing, basically. I'm the one, not the one who does the knowing, but I'm the one that knowing happens to. And so again, you know, it's not, it's not something to try to see or even to understand, you know, how is it useful, but just notice your own experience. You've seen directly the value of seeing feeling and perception and intention. If you just explore that feeling of me Yeah.
sensory, uh, uh, sensory experience, can we know it, but without having perceived it? I, I don't have you know, contact, contact. I mean, the, that in that honey ball sutta that I said yesterday, you know, the, the 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 kind of the unfolding of that was based on the eye and forms. Eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact, and so already eye form consciousness is into play with contact, and then um, uh, with uh, let's see. Then contact, with contact, feeling and perception are said to arise. I, uh, the, the language is with contact as condition, uh, feeling arises. What one feels, that one perceives. And so feeling and perception arising together. So that makes it sound like it's, you know, separate moments. You know, this sound, this is a, Look in your own experience. What can you know about contact? In my own experience, when I can see contact, you know, even just that is pretty phenomenal. When the mind can recognize contact. When, when the mind is knowing contact, um, at least in my experience, it wasn't thinking about, well, how do I know contact? Is feeling there? Is perception there? It was just like, Contact. <laughs> so, so I wouldn't, I, w- I, I wouldn't think about it too much. So I've had the experience. Um, so this is kind of knowing it by the negative, if that's possible. I've had the experience of the seeing out of the five senses, where for whatever the reason, I'm looking at something and I don't recognize it. To, to kind of perceive it, to know what it is. Um, but there is, in those moments, there's... There's the sight, there's the contact, yeah, exactly. And there's often feeling, you know, ex- except the, the, perception, the function of perception is already at work there. Yeah. I've, also seen, I've also seen that. So it's not that, it's not that the... That the the function of perception is is not there. It's 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 trying to do a pattern matching, and it's going nope, not that, nope, not that, nope, not that, nope, not that, nope, not that. Yeah, yeah. I've seen I've seen my mind, you know, try on various perceptions and rule them out, <laughs> and then then it comes up with one. So the function is working. It just quite hasn't quite found the match. And I see that happening in in levels of low light. Or you know things, situations like that. Yeah. yeah. So the function is happening, and so that's the distinction between the function and the result of the function. You might have a sense of the mind trying to figure it out, <laughs> and I've had that too. It's like, especially with unfamiliar states of meditation, the mind goes, "What's that? What's that? What's that?" It's like it, it's like some part of the perceptual process just has to keep kind of doing that, figure it out, figure out what it is. Yeah, thanks. Let's see, what's the time? We have time for maybe one more, yeah. What was the name of the sutta that you were just talking about? 
the um, the one I talked about with perception, the what one feels, that one perceives. That is the Honeyball Sutta, and it is in the Majjhima Nikaya, number 18. And I'll say something about that because the other day I said, you know, this is what the Buddha says. But actually that sutta is kind of interesting because the Buddha makes a cryptic statement. Um, Perceptions and feelings, oh no, perceptions and notions no more underlie, I can't even remember, it's so obscure. Um, And... um, he goes off, you know, so he makes this statement and the, the, the monks go, what? <laughs> and he makes yet another cryptic statement and they're kind of stunned and he goes off to, to meditate and they, they ask another monk, they ask Mahakachana, so what the heck did he mean? <laughs> what was he saying? And Mahakachana says, you know, you should have asked the Buddha this, but here's what I think it means. And so this teaching that I offered, uh, based on the I informs, eye contact arises, the meeting of the three is consciousness. That's Mahakachana speaking. That's not the Buddha speaking. And later the monks, you know, Mahakachana says, okay, now go, no, now go ask the Buddha. You know, when the Buddha gets up from meditation, ask him. And they reported to the Buddha what Mahakachana says. And, and uh, the Buddha says, you know, Mahakachana is wise. You should remember it the way he taught it. So I like that, you know, I like that the Buddha was, you know, generous in his, you know, he did it well, you know, remember it that way, that's good. 